You're listening to Zen Sandwich, a podcast for the independent mind and anyone who embraces life despite its absurdities. Join former attorney and professor turned Japanese papermaker Mark Reed each week as he talks with creative, inspiring, and influential people, or as he shares his own research to help make your world a little better today than it was yesterday. Hey, here we are. I have got a, uh, a very cool guest today for a bunch of reasons. Uh, Will Kimbrough has had a long and very diverse career in music, over 30 years. He is a uh, singer-songwriter, a producer, a touring artist, a multi-instrumentalist. I love that. Uh, honestly, I could have him on for the successes he's had under any one of the, those the umbrella terms. And if you think I'm embellishing, well, as a singer-songwriter, his songs have been recorded by Jimmy Buffett, Little Feet, Jack Ingram, Gretchen Peters, just to name a few. As a producer, he has production credits for Jimmy Buffett, Todd Snyder, and others. As a band member, he's worked with Emmylou Harris and Todd Snyder. He's formed his own bands, one of which produced under the late, great John Prine's uh, record label. As a multi-instrumentalist, he is a guitarist who can also play the accordion, the banjo, the bass guitar, harmonica, something called a dobro, I, uh, a resonator guitar. I'm, I'm not a musician, so, but I read about it, but I still don't understand how it works. Um, but I, and, you know, I would imagine he could pick up some drumsticks or sit down on a piano and probably get by. Let's put it this way. He was recognized in 2004 as the instrumentalist of the year by the Americana Music Association. He's still putting out uh, the music these days. His latest album is called Spring Break. Um, and he's even writing a book about uh, his whole life <laughs> and uh, rock and roll times. His time is valuable, and he's honoring us uh, with it today. Welcome to the show, uh, Will Kimbrough. Thank you, thank you. I'm glad to be here. When did music start for you? How old were you when you first picked up a guitar? Uh, I got a guitar on my 12th birthday. And also, I got a $4.50 ticket to see Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band at a 1,000-seat theater in Mobile, Alabama on the Born to Run tour. That'll do it. That's the ingredients for Yeah, it was like uh, <laughs> some sort of uh, lower Alabama Avalon, you know. <laughs> got the guitar, you know, saw Springsteen at the tiny theater. And uh, yeah. amazing, yeah. That's I, awesome. I, never, I, I went right into it. Well, I, I know that you have uh, worked on a book in the past or you, you're working on a book. Um, and so if it comes out, I don't want to spoil anything, but can you give us a teaser? Can you give us like one rock and roll story? Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, <laughs> when I was just out of high school, um, I had a, a new wave band called Ground Zero. And my friend Rob Trucks, who used to teach at University of Alabama, is from Birmingham, now lives in Long Island in New York. And um, he had booked REM to play on the, it was the last date of their chronic town tour before they went home and made murmur and which, you know, was their breakthrough record right. really. And the rest is history. But so, but he booked them. It was school wasn't even in the exams were over. It was Christmas holidays, but he booked them anyway. And so they played the Sanger theater in mobile and my band ground zero got to open for them. And so I got to spend the afternoon with REM who weren't that weren't that they had just come from New York city. They'd been opening for the British band gang of four and they were in Rolling Stone and, you know, uh, 
Mike Mills and Bill Barry were super nice, just Southern polite guys. And then right. Peter Buck was kind of like cooler than everybody. And he <laughs> needed to borrow my amp because their his amp was blown up and he didn't have a spare. And, but he's kind of snobbed out on, he's like, well, I'd prefer if you had a Fender twin, but I guess I'll use that. And I was like, well, okay, I'm, I'm loaning you my amp. But of course I was also in awe. And then, and Michael Stipe would barely speak to anybody. I remember we were talking about Mobile and they were talking about Georgia, different places they were from, Macon, Atlanta. Right. And, uh, and Buck, I mean, uh, Mike Stipe sitting across the theater from us, wrapped up in a trench coat smoking camels staring at the wall <laughs> pensively said you know out of the blue i lived in mobile for a year when i was a kid because i guess he was an army brat or a military brat and uh, and he said it sucked you know and so we were like yeah all right you know <laughs> but i remember Thanks that, for that contribution yeah <laughs> yeah so the the springsteen show i saw on my 12th birthday was definitely like i'm gonna do this right and then the rem show was like oh i can do this <laughs> Right. Because they had a crummy van that was beat to hell and, and Peter Buck's amp was blown up and he didn't have a spare. Right. And they looked, uh, I think the bass player in my band, I think I was like, uh, maybe just turned 19. The bass player in our band was like 23 or 24. And so he, they looked just like him, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? There's yeah. That, so that so you can where you're, saw that like, they're not actually in the stratosphere, you know, they're human beings and they're yeah. actually not that far away from where I am right now. Yeah, I can, we can go do this. And so, um, so about a year later, I quit that band and we started Will and the Bushman because the whole idea was that we will make record first and we will have our music out there for people to be able to get, hmm. which back then meant a cassette or an, or a vinyl record only basically. And right. so we did that, you know, we, we, we recorded, a record and uh put it out and so by 85 we were on the road selling our record and on the radio and so um that was definitely a, a pivotal rock and roll moment and then fast forward a couple of years later we're we've got a record deal we're going up to new york city in another crummy i think it was a gmc van that had shag carpeting inside of it that had a three-speed shifter and we had our all our gear in the in the back and we got pulled over we we're going to record at the record plant where Springsteen and John Lennon and Kiss, wow. and, yeah. you know, everybody recorded the Jimi Hendrix, you know, recorded there in Midtown Manhattan. Dang. And we're going to go record demos for our record deal. And uh, we got pulled over in sight of what then was on the Jersey Turnpike. You could see the, see the skyline. Towers. Yeah. Yeah. You could see the south end of Manhattan. And, and so we got pulled over and, everything out on the side of the jersey turnpike you know every guitar every suit oh, they pulled every everything backpack. out of i got you and they finally our 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 drummer who i who one of his nicknames and i still play with brian owings in the emmy lou harris band and, and then the red dirt boys um one of his nicknames is 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 sandwich just wanted to tell you that <laughs> that's awesome. and that's because he's from columbus mississippi and he used to be in this band and and there was an old guy that would sell sandwiches on this, you know, he had like a little cart and he sold and he said, sandwiches, sandwiches. So <laughs> his awesome. nickname was sandwich anyway. But, uh, but so finally in Brian's symbol bag, you know, there's those round bags with symbols in them. Yeah. Drummer symbols. And, um, and there was some sort of trucker speed pill. I was going to say, did they find anything? Okay. And then they found like, a 
burnt piece of paper that appeared to have wow. been once part of a hand rolled cigarette of some sort. Unbelievable. And, and then, then they let us go. Oh, cool. We sat okay. there on the side of the Jersey Turnpike. They, they, took, the, they took the speed pill with them, I'm sure. They took it with them. And, but, you know, I'll never forget that sitting on the side of the road. There's, there's so many stories. I mean, what, what year they was go that? back to the seven. That was 89. That was, yeah. I was, uh, it might have even been late 88. You could still get away with it back then. No way today. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So, but I love it. Nashville's an amazing place and it is full of people that, um, on the surface, there's a glitzy kind of country thing. And then underneath it has always been, um, somebody asked me years ago, when did Nashville get so cool? And I was like, well, you know, Hank Williams recorded here right. and, uh, Johnny Cash recorded here and, uh, I mean, Dylan a- recorded here. Chris Christopherson recorded here, you know, the Grand Ole Opry is there, right? <laughs> Grand Ole Opry, um, you know, Bill Monroe came here. Towns Van Zant moved here from Texas and stayed. John Prine moved here. Yeah. Rodney Crowell moved here. Amy Lou Harris moved here. Uh, you know, uh, Guy Clark lived here. So, I mean, it's always been cool if you were interested in musicians or songwriters. Yeah. How like tough was it? Oh, I'm sorry. How, how tough mm-hmm. was it when uh, John Prine passed, man? It was very tough, and it's still bonds people um people you know eulogize john every day and um the 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 reason i made a record called spring break that it's my you know somebody i saw somebody today on twitter had posted a bunch of red flags and and then it said i recorded my album alone during pandemic quarantine you know it's like this is a red flag but i did and actually recorded it in april 2020 so i sat down immediately in my little home studio and started recording songs Mm. just to have something to do but one of the first songs I wrote was a song called the late great John Prine blues. Yeah. And it talks about it. It says, you know, it, it talks about the night that he died and, the, and then uh, also just talks about the surreal days of that early shutdown. Yeah. Uh, our 19 year old daughter was walking around the block with us every night, hanging out with us. You know, uh, your 19 year olds, not really, you're supposed to be like trying to get a few minutes with your 19 year old while they're off with their friends. Yeah. You know, the like celebrities and, and uh, musicians that come and go and uh, you know, we see the uh, passing and <clears throat> you know, I can really count on one hand when it actually affects me, you know, cause yeah. I don't know these people. They're just on TV or they're just on the radio or whatever, you know, like when Robin Williams, I like it bothered mm-hmm. me. And yeah. when John, John Prine died, it bothered me. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he was an older guy, you know. I mean, he lived a full yeah. life. but He was 73. He wasn't in the best of health, but he still, like, I had. I, but uh, I love John Prine. I was Sam Stone, all those men. Yeah. And I had been around him. But, well, you know, did a record for his label back in the early 90s. And yeah. and also, uh, and then he had come in and guested on a Shamika Copeland record I produced. Wow. And when he came in. We did, we covered his song, Great Rain, which is a song from his Great Missing Years record. And it's really, the structure is a blues. It's also co-written by Mike Campbell of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. So it was a cool tie-in. John came in and we, we were just going to not bother him and just get him to sing on the choruses and maybe do a few ad-libs on the outro. Yeah. And he was like, he really liked it. And he's, we spent the whole day with him and he just made us laugh all day. And he insisted on it being a full duet. He was like, why don't you let me sing the second verse? And then we'll sing the third <laughs> verse together and we'll trade off lines. And next thing you know, we're just with John all day. And it was That's one awesome. of the best days. And then, and then playing with Emmy Lou, we would used to do a yearly little run of shows with him. We'd play uh, Philly and DC with him. And, um, 
share the bill, Amy Lou and John Prine, good bill. And, uh, yeah. and then get up on stage. And with Todd Snyder, we would go open for John and get out and do the encore with him and sing paradise. And, um, but the last time I saw him, uh, he had a one festival. It was the, all the best festival in the Dominican Republic. So they rented <laughs> out this resort and then all these music musicians went down to play. And so Emmy Lou played right after John on the last night of the festival. So we watched John and the band. Um, and you know, John's bass player is one of my best friends and he's been, he was with John for 25 years, Dave Jakes. Wow. We have a band together called daddy and we've made a few records. So, um, John came off stage on this ramp in the back of the stage and John and Fiona, his wife, and, and one of, one of Fiona's sons were there and we were standing with Emmy Lou and some of the band and, we had just a nice conversation. Everybody's chuckling and smiling and just doing things you figure you do with John Prine, like wow. stand around and kind of chuckle to yourself and shrug and ah, that's just the way it is. It's great. Yeah. Everything's <laughs> good. And then we played. And then when we came off, he was there to meet us. You guys sounded great. And, um, and then, you know, fast forward three months, four months. And, and uh, oh, yeah, cause that was a uh, November. Yeah. Yeah. Well, th let me ask you this. I mean, I'm keeping you longer than I expected, but, uh, but I, I do have a, man, I could talk to you all day. Uh, you got so much, uh, good stories. Um, when did you stop be, or maybe you never were starstruck, but you know, for when you're starting out, you know, and you, you, well, you mentioned being in front of REM or whatever, Michael Sype and, and then realizing like, you know, hey, that's just another dude. In fact, he said something kind of obnoxious to me, you know, like, is that when you just like, you know what, I'm not starstruck anymore. When Alex Chilton came back in the mid eighties and he, you know, was the singer for big star and he also was in the box tops. So he had a career that was hit records in the sixties and then, you know, influential obscurity in the seventies and eighties. <laughs> And he came sort of showed back up at about 1986 or 85 with a, with a record. And one of his first shows out, we opened for him in Birmingham at the Nick. And I was I've been there the many came. times. Yeah. There were so many people there. The cops came and shut it down. And then yeah. the Nick opened the doors back up and let everybody back in. It was just a classic eighties. <laughs> like okay, everybody just stay outside for about 20 minutes and then we'll let everybody back in. So there was like 600 people in the Nick, which holds about. Which, I was going to say that thing place is tiny, man. <laughs> and it was a glorious night. Cause we got to see Alex and I was a huge, I had been turned on to the big star records by somebody made me a cassette with number one record in radio city on it. I later discovered the third record. And so we would open for Alex often because these promoters and we had a song called dear Alex. that came out in 85. It was a, tribute to Alex Chilton before the replacements had one. And, um, and, um, so, you know, we would get called to go open for Alex. And so I got to hang out with Alex some, and I was starstruck by him. Um, and he seemed so old. He was 36 and I was 19 at the time. And he just seemed like he was a hundred years old and just like, <laughs> you know, just the most cynical jaded guy. And he kind of was, but, um, so that taught me a little bit of a lesson. It's like, don't go up to your hero and just start jawing about how right. awesome you think something they did 30 years ago was just be, just be cool. <laughs> and so that you know, years later I was in a very fancy place in St. Bart with Jimmy Buffett and a group of songwriters. We were working on songs for a Jimmy Buffett record 
Roger Waters and his wife walk up. Wow. Pink Floyd. Yeah. And he walks up like a hologram. He's, he looks, he's wearing like a blue. <laughs> That's how I imagine. <laughs> I mean, he's dressed just like when, when they played at live eight, he was wearing the same outfit, like some weird high waisted <laughs> jeans and a button down shirt and like a thin belt. And then these little like boating shoes. And I was like, wow, that's Roger Waters. And he comes up. And so I guess Jimmy and Roger are neighbors in the Hamptons in Sag Harbor. So Roger, Jimmy, how are you? And Roger, how are you doing? And so he's next thing, you know, he's sitting down with us for lunch and he tells a joke, like a dry British joke about a pig, pig that good. You don't eat all, all at once or something, you know, the three-legged pig. And, um, and I remember one of the guys at the table was a huge Pink Floyd fan and he was just freaking out. Like his legs started jiggling like that, you know? <laughs> and then he just blurted out within about five minutes. You guys are awesome on live eight. Are you going to get back together with David Gilmore? And, and, and I remember Roger orders was really so sweet. He was like, he said, no, no, we, you know, we don't hate each other. We just don't like to work together and we don't have to. So we don't. And then he told us some story about how much every time, every year they get a meeting and they get offered a slip of paper across the table and they unfold right. it. And it's some, the amount of money if they would play one show in Japan or Europe or, right, right. or wherever. And they just all kind of look at it and shake their heads and say, we, we don't need it. We don't need it. And, um, and then he joined us for dinner that night wow. and he, and he asked, and, and there was one seat left at the table because he showed up a little late and it was next to me. So next thing I know, I'm at the end of the table with Roger Waters and we're eating sushi and he, well, I'm just trying to be cool. And I'm just saying, well, how are you, Roger? Did you have a good day? You know, what's going on? You know, it's another like, brick in the wall, you know? Just Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. And, um, and he, but he leans over to me finally after a while of small talk. And he says, do you know, Neil Young? And I said, I certainly know of him. I said, I bet you know him. And he said, and he said, well, actually, and he told me this story of playing one of Neil's benefit shows in California. And it was the first time Roger had played after he quit Pink Floyd. And he said his roadie had died, who had been his roadie since 1965. And he didn't even know where his bass was. Didn't know where his stuff was. He had a guitar and a piano at home that he writes <laughs> Lost, on. Yeah. And so he had to go find his gear and put a band together and play the show. And he said it started him on wanting to play music again. Hmm. And so it was such a great night. The audience was so sweet. And it, it was uh, like Jackson Brown and Neil Young and some people that he liked, you know. But anyway, he told me, he said, Rust Never Sleeps by Neil Young is like his favorite album of all time. Roger Waters' favorite. Wow. Album. What he said to me yeah. over sushi in St. Bart. And, and, <laughs> and I said, yeah, I like that record a lot. It's great. It's a great record. And, um, and he said, so I wanted to talk to Neil. And so he said, but Neil was in his dressing room and he wasn't out among the people unless he was on the stage. So finally I went back there in the hallway of the venue and knocked on the dressing room door. And this big biker guy, like a security guard roadie guy was like, Neil's not talking to anybody. And so he said, well, could you just tell him? I'm not telling him anything. Neil's not talking to anybody. And so Roger kind of slinks away and sits down on a chair in the, in the hallway like a little kid. And then he knocked on the door again and he said, could you just tell him that Roger, he goes, I don't care if you're Albert Einstein. I'm not telling Neil nothing. And Neil was in a bad mood or whatever. So I just thought that was a good, yeah, that's a great story about meeting your, your heroes because and yeah, it's a man, great it's Roger Waters away, man. That's great. Roger Waters had to be kind of sulk away and not meet somebody that he wanted to meet. Um, and so I've, I've always taken that ever since. Like if somebody's super famous, yeah, uh, I'm like I shook Willie Nelson's hand recently, and it was actually at the 
after party for the preview of that that uh, movie, that concert movie Neil Young did a few years ago that he filmed at the Ryman Auditorium. I forget what it was called, but it was it was a cool, you know, and I I got somehow got invited to this thing at at Tootsie's, the, the famous country bar yeah, downtown. I know, I know and so I went because Neil and Willie were supposed to jam. And I thought <laughs> that'd be fun to go see. So I went and there's a couple of friends of mine in the bar and there's a few people there. And then Willie Nelson walks in by himself into this bar. And again, it's like a hologram coming towards you. I mean, yeah. I've been in a room with Willie Nelson before, but he, he just walks straight over to me, but kind of looking over my shoulder. I'm sure he was high as a kite and, <laughs> and handed me this little cold fish handshake. Yeah. Like he just sort of put his hand out. He just had his hand out like, like a weapon. Like I'm not, I'm going <laughs> to shake hands and I, I'm, and, and to my left at a table at a booth was Neil and Emmy Lou. And I think Ben Keith, who was a steel player who played on heart of gold and all the stuff. And, um, you know, the old musicians that played with Neil were there and Emmy Lou. Mm. And so Willie was making a beeline over there, but he knew he had to shake a few hands. Right. And so he just offered me his hand and just, and then gave me this like little, little i remember fish, his hand was fish, just dead hands pale white yeah it's just like a little and then he walked by me so i, I you know you, i could have stopped said willie you got to stop for a second i got to tell you man you know the right, sound right, in your right. mind is just something right. that I, I stole that record from my mom in 77 and it, <laughs> it switched me from like you know southern rock and kiss and aerosmith to real music you know and um with all due respect to kiss and aerosmith but, <laughs> Anyway, there's so many. I mean, it's such a yeah. great, it's such a fun, fun thing. There's so many great stories, and it does it. I, I'm I'm trying to organize this book idea into something that will make sense because um, I'm not famous, and I and I don't I didn't write any hits. You got a, you got a Wikipedia page? Well, right, right. But I mean, you <laughs> you want to you want a reason for somebody to want to pick up your book, right. and um, so I think part of it will be why keep doing this. Yeah. And so it'll be a little bit of that. Do you, do you still have anything left on the, like, you know, sort of uh, music bucket list? Like, I, I would love to get a Grammy, you know, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course. Yeah. I would love it. And I produced Shamika Copeland's record, Uncivil War, which has won all the record of the year, blues record, Mojo Magazine, uh, Living Blues Magazine. I was a blues producer of the year for the wow. last, the previous record. And so it actually has a shot because it's on Alligator Records, which is a venerable old blues label that's been around for 50 years. That's awesome. And so it does have a shot. And I, I'm probably jinxing it by saying that, but oh, man. <laughs> it would be cool to, I mean, I've, I've been a, a little bit of uh, jaded on that because I do know that all awards are just, you know, but it is, it is, it would be another validation. Well, it's the final but one, I don't right? Need, I mean, yeah, right. it's the final one. Yeah. I, but I, I, I don't really need validation as much as I did because I right. did literally understand that moment that I get to live the creative life. And as soon as I really accepted that, then I don't know if uh, that created an atmosphere where I could just get all this work or just feel confident and sort of suggest that like, I'd like to work on your record, but you know, I'm really a songwriter. So if you want to work on some songs together, that would be more, what you want to do. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I love to go play on people's sessions. I was over at Cowboy Jack Clement's studio who passed away a few years ago, but his studio is still over there near my house and went over there and worked in the bass player who was the last working bass player that played in Johnny Cash's band while he was still touring. Dave Rowe. 
was telling me that he was been over there working on some Johnny Cash songs that have been unearthed that were unfinished, like recordings. And he's been, they, they brought in the guys that were still around that had played with him to play on. Wow, that's awesome. I thought, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing that happens in a town like this, where if you're around a while mm. and you keep your shit together and you keep getting better, like Dave, Ro- Dave Rose in his mid to late sixties, you know, grew up in Hawaii, saw, saw Jimi Hendrix play a couple of times, you know, he's a rock and roller, <laughs> but he, but he became a slap upright bass player for Johnny Cash. Boom, 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 yeah. And he's, he's the, he's the man. Um, no kidding. And, uh, pl- you know, he plays with, um, with, uh, Dan from the black keys and, you know, he's, he's gets around and gets good gigs, but, but he still gets to do these cool things like that. But at the same time, he was at the session yesterday, which was just for a singer songwriter that nobody's ever heard of. And he was, I think plenty engaged, you know, yeah, because we're doing what we do. It's like we get an opportunity right. to do the thing that is our, our Zen moment, which is there you hear go. A song, hear a song once right out the chart and then start creating the, the arrangement on the spot. And how much more mindful is that? I'm like, That's we need it. to get this, get this right. Uh, well, you know, you just mentioned your, your friend Samich. Uh, this show is called Zen Samich. Mm-hmm. And, and I do that because, uh, yeah, I do sometimes talk about Western Zen. Um, and the Samich part is to illustrate not to take it too seriously. So there is some talk about meditation, about uh, breathing techniques, mindfulness, being present, all that stuff. But for the most part, I'm really concerned with being practical. And um, basically how to get through this life with a sense of peace and calm, despite all of the absurd shit that's out there politically, right. religiously, et cetera. So my, uh, I do a segment at the end of Zen Sandwich uh, called Five Minutes Zen. And I usually tailor the question for, uh, you know, whoever I'm talking to. And my question to you, Will, is how do you chill out? And I mean, that can be a, a shot of bourbon. It could be meditation, whatever. But what do you do when the world gets overwhelming as it can for all of us? I usually walk. I walk. Me too, actually. Yeah. Walking is a form of meditation for me. Yeah. yeah, me too. And I read because my brain is always racing. I'm always working on songs. I'm always looking, juggling a schedule looking at my phone calendar making sure I know what I'm doing that I'm on time hmm. and and then just shutting things off and uh, have a have a dog uh, hang out with my dog that always helps and uh so really and music is meditative you know yeah, just pick course. up an instrument and start to play and there's there's something uh very mindful about uh music that you, when you're playing music, you can, you almost have to focus on that. Get in the zone. Yeah. You have to focus on the present note chord that you're playing. And then you have to focus on the next one, which brings you into the present again. Yeah. Um, I thought the the warrior path program is all about meditation, mindfulness, breathing. Mm -hmm. It's, it's to deal with post-traumatic stress disorder through post-traumatic growth and ancient healthy practices. It works, man. It's, it's good and it's stuff. A, I mean, the, the program has grown and grown and grown to where we're going on the road yeah. as individuals just multiple times a month and working and you get these big tatted up veterans <laughs> yeah. or, or, or groups of, of that have of probably women, seen some women. hardcore stuff, man. Yeah. Oh yeah. They've been in combat and, um, 
and um but and they're talking meditation is so powerful just mm. to, to for for those folks so i mean i take that as a lesson for myself that the things that i do that are meditative mm. I, I, tr I do focus on, I, I wish I was a better meditator, literally, but, but I think I have a lot of things that allow me to go to the place where I can yeah, slow, no, I, it, slow it down or, or chill it out, you know. That's it. And in fact, I actually tell people, don't beat yourself up if you're not a good meditator or whatever. Like, you know, I don't sit for five hours a day or anything like that. Um, it, I thought you brought up two great ones. You know, take a walk, read a book. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Well, uh, you, you've talked about what you're going, what you got going on now. Uh, you know, what would you like people to know about, uh, where, where can they find you? Your Patreon page or, or where else? I've got willkimbro.com and okay. I do have patreon.com forward slash willkimbro. I'm on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, willkimbro music on Facebook. I'm working on the book. I'm working on a new record, which is centered around a fictional surreal song. Um, that, takes an, a deadhead from the 80s up to the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. Oh. And it's a trippy, I had to, I've edited it down to like five and a half minutes. <laughs> so it's a, it's a, it's like a surreal sci-fi short story about a deadhead and a insurrectionist and, wow. and, um, and the, and it's about the South. It's called deadheads in the Delta. And, um, so it's centered around that, but there's also some, uh, some songs of, you know, trying to have some sort of gospel centered, sure. Secular gospel music, musical style gospel, uh, right, right. uh, some songs of hope and peace. And, um, so I'm working on that record. It's, it's all, re it's recorded. I'm just getting the, like, you know, the harmony vocals and things like that done. Well, awesome. Well, I will, uh, I'll link all the stuff to where people can follow you, you know? And, uh, so awesome. I, I assume, yeah, stuff comes out, you'll be, you'll be making announcements and, you know, you put Absolutely. on Twitter or whatever. There you go. Yep. There you have it, folks. Uh, go take a walk, read a book and, uh, follow Will Kimbrough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He is a legend. Um, man, I appreciate your time. Like, you know, I, I, too. I, I thought we'd go 20 minutes. I'm like, man, I, I got to know more. I got to know. I mean, you know, I'm going to have to have you back on <laughs> coffee up. Yeah. Anytime. I, I love it. Um, thank you. Thanks. Will. <laughs>